Hello, welcome to Right Now. I'm Stephen Kent. Today, we're just going to dive right in. That's because Daniel DiMartino is joining me here in person at our oddly shaped table. And there is a heck of a lot to talk about between his life story, uprisings in Cuba, Mia Khalifa, Daniel, my Latinx friend. Welcome to the table. Thanks for having me, Steve. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry I called you that. I couldn't help it. I, I was told the other day by one of my friends in my neighborhood that uh, I'm running for HOA board. So I want to be on the HOA because I am just that kind of busybody, in case anybody out there is surprised by that. And she told me, <laughs> she told me that to do it and to connect with the people in my neighborhood, majority Hispanic community, that I would have to actually do door to doors and be able to communicate with the Latinx community. And I just went, what? I don't know how to talk to people about that. Yeah, I think that if she would tell you that you need to connect with the Latinx community, she's probably not the best person to connect with them in the first place, uh, because that's not really a word that anybody in casual real life uses. Well, then why then why are people telling me that I need to use it if I'm going to actually like connect to people in my community about that stuff? It's everywhere. The president of the United States uses it. Right, because it, it, it's coming from the top down, not from the bottom up. It's coming from academia and it's people who are leftists, who are just Americans born and raised here, who have no interaction with people from Latin America, uh, want to define them as because they do not like that Spanish is a gendered language and that the masculine word Latino is gender neutral. They dislike that because, you know, they, that's pretty yeah. standard for romance languages, though, right? It is. It yeah. is. It is pretty standard in Latin America. The radical left in Latin America is actually trying to do the same, but instead of Latin X, like Chicano, Chicana. Yeah, <laughs> they use with an E, Latine, and we hate it. It's, it's I insane. I thought it was Chican with the at symbol or something. I wasn't that a That's thing. That's an like, American thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be just like complete internet speak, though, for it to be Chican A symbol. I don't know how you would actually say that to people. You know, something people don't know, but um, when Chavez rewrote the Constitution in Venezuela. He rewrote all the words like presidente, which is masculine, okay. as presidente or presidenta. And so he added several pages in the constitution just by including both gendered words. Really? Yeah. Chavez did that. He did. Now, I thought, what about machismo? <laughs> what, what about the whole uh, masculinity in Latin America thing? I think, is that just like purely evidence of where the roots of this kind of idea comes from? Marxism? And yeah, <laughs> this, is, this is a radical lefting, leftist idea that, that comes from those very radical places. I think what the, the polling on it, I think Pew Research in the beginning of the summer, they had the most up-to-date numbers when people were talking about President Biden using the word and kind of stumbling his way through delivery on Latin I think it is 97 to 3% in terms of disapprove, approve uh, for actual Latin Americans who use that word. Yes. Uh, yes, it is just something that is being forced upon people. And my fear would be that young uh, Latin people in this country who are born here, who go through the public school system here, will get that word imposed upon them. So hopefully the immigrants that come from Latin America will pass down our traditions and, and not allow the leftists to define us. Yeah, but how yeah. long can you actually resist that poll? I mean, the cultural power here in the American left, I mean, eventually it all goes that way. I mean, the New York Times, the Washington Post, higher education, and now K through 12, like they are all pushing this kind of stuff. Um, and I think one of the, the last pieces I read from NPR about the whole like Latinx idea is asking whether or not Latin Americans are ready 
for this terminology. Yeah. I guess ready to receive it. Well, I don't think that you know people usually don't know this, but most people don't even use Hispanic or Latino who are from Latin America. Uh, we just define ourselves by the country we. Came what is the from. difference? I, I don't even know the difference between saying like Hispanic person or Latino. In in American English, it's just become an interchangeable okay. word. Technically, you know, Latino includes Brazil and Haiti, okay. uh, but Hispanic technically does not, and it includes Spain, right? Because it's from Spanish. Latino is just from Latin America. Um, so yeah, I would technically be like both because I'm from Venezuela and it's part of both Spanish speaking and Latin America. But you know, people usually define themselves as Venezuelan or Cuban or Colombian or Argentine. Are you saying national identity still matters to people? Yeah. In the year of our Lord 2021. <laughs> yes, and that lat, lat, you know racial identities don't really matter because in Latin America there's different people from different ethnic backgrounds that have nothing. You know, I have Asian Latin American friends. Yeah. Uh, and I have black and white Latin American friends, and it has nothing to do. With, with our national identity. Yeah, I, I always uh, tell tell folks like if you want to see discrimination uh, and bigotry in live action, you should check out my Mexican and Guatemalan neighbors and how much they despise <laughs> each other. Yes. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, okay, so this is how this works. And you know, Venezuelans are experiencing uh, are experiencing a lot of xenophobia in the rest of Latin America uh, due to refugee crisis of yeah. where they're going in Peru, in Chile, in Colombia. Um, and you would not be able to distinguish a Venezuelan by looking at them. You would distinguish them by the accent. Uh, and that's how they, they get discriminated against. And people don't know this. Yet. Well, how long have you been in the United States? Is five, five years now? Five years. Okay, so you came here in 2016 from Venezuela. You have made quite a splash, my friend. Uh, I don't know how you just like land in the United States and you, you know, Fast forward five years, you're doing talk shows, you're in major newspapers, you're talking with Congress people and ambassadors and whoever. Tell us a little bit about your journey and people who are just meeting you for the first time. Yeah, well, sometimes I don't know how how that happens, but I guess that that's what happens in the United States to people. Um, so I came five years ago uh, to the United States from Venezuela. Uh, I finished high school in Venezuela um, in 2016. And I obtained a full right scholarship to study in Indiana University uh, in Indianapolis. And, you know, that's, that's how I got here. Um, I started a BA in economics, started economics because I, I experienced terrible things economically in Venezuela. And I wanted to know why that was happening. And, and so I, I became passionate about the, that science. And, you know, was, when I was in college campuses, I saw how the left tried to, to change the minds of people, how many college students supported Bernie Sanders, who I thought was the same as Hugo Chavez in Venezuela and then Maduro. Um, and then I just became passionate about politics here, right? I wanted to get involved. I identified myself with conservative values. And, and so I just became involved by volunteering. And then I wanted to do TV. I did an internship in DC. I met young voices. I met you. And, it, it all just went up from there, you know. I, I just was not afraid to say what I thought, and and I people wanted to give me a platform, and so I I, I did it. What status are you in the United States under? Because I, I know sometimes when you've done television and speak, people just offhand will say Venezuelan refugee Daniel yeah. DiMartino. Yeah. What are the differences, uh, yeah. and why do people get that wrong? Well, first, there's really no refugee in the United States from Venezuela under the refugee program. Not there are asylum seekers. Okay. Uh, but there's no one refugee actually. Um, for some reason, the U.S. refugee program has decided not to focus on Venezuela, which is the largest refugee crisis closest to the United States. Not even under President Trump, they weren't able to push that through? Well, he cut the refugee numbers, so the opposite, right? 
Uh, most of the refugees actually come from Africa. Um, but um, so there are asylum seekers. I'm under a student visa, so I came as a foreign student to college, uh, to a college, um, and then I now started doing a PhD program, so I'm still in that status. And now a lot of Venezuelans have applied for something called temporary protected status (TPS), which was granted by Biden, uh, which is a kind of legal status that Congress allowed the president to grant arbitrarily to people from different countries under bad conditions, and that allows you to work and travel and do many things, but it, it, does, it does not lead to permanent residence. What does it lead to? Nothing. You are in a legal limbo, and if the president at some point decides to end TPS, uh, like Trump decided with many other countries. You almost faced like actually getting yes, out of the country. Right? Yes, it, not, it was not because of TPS, it was because uh, during the pandemic, uh-huh. people who were doing online classes, okay. um, the you know, the Department of Homeland Security decided yeah. that they do not need to be in the United States, even if they have an apartment with their belongings and everything there. That seems like a, a Stephen Miller kind of decision to get made. Yes, it, it just made no sense. And so there was so much pushback against it that they reversed They reversed it. Uh, they would have pushed back like hundreds of thousands of foreign students out of the country. Well, your enemies uh, in the national conservative movement would have been very delighted at that. I mean, you yeah. talk about like making a splash, like yeah. there are... Tons of Daniel DiMartino haters out there. You got you got big fans and supporters of you in the conservative movement. Um, are you disappointed at all with the conservative movement since you you've gotten involved in it? I mean, you show up here five six years ago. You come here with like Reagan in your heart and as like the beacon of American conservatism. And I get the feeling Reagan's out. Like Reagan uh, and his legacy is up for litigation like it's never been before. Well, well, a few things there. Uh, I'm not disappointed at all in the conservative movement. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be anywhere if it wasn't because people here in this country want to hear the stories of people who fled socialist countries. And they want to hear them because they know that they change their minds and they motivate people uh, in this country. And I think that that's the way that we can change the discourse and we can move away people young people who are in the left, right? They need to hear first-hand experiences, especially people who are deceived, right? Because most people who are socialists in this country are not socialists because they have bad intentions, but they just want better things. And and I've had success with, with several of my friends, you know, and making them more moderate. And that's how you change the discussion. And, you know, with people who, who despise immigrants or things like that, I don't think they're really conservative in the first place. So I just don't consider them part of the conservative movement. Talking about deceived, I was looking uh, up my favorite hate tweets against you, and I'm sure you can, <laughs> you can recall. Okay, tell me, you tell me. Well, this, is, uh, this was one about being deceived. So this is from uh, at Mindy Beth. So you fear, and she's talking to you, so you fear ordinary Americans might travel to Venezuela, talk to Maduro, and learn the truth, Daniel DiMartino? I urge you to fix your own wannabe right dictator self. It takes a lot of right-wing entitlement to flee to my country, (laughs) the United States, and demand my government deny U.S. citizens basic rights. One thing that I can't get about (laughs) hatred... I I had not read that one. One of the things I can't get about like hatred of you online is that it comes from like the deep left and the deep right, and everybody thinks you're playing for the other side. Like People are adding you all day, thinking you're some sort of like socialist sleeper cell because you want immigration to the United States. Uh, You know, I mean, I think that immigrants, you know, made this country and 
immigration is a good thing, both economically and culturally. Um, I don't think that it will change America for the worse. I think the, the opposite. I think immigrants assimilate to American culture and immigrants seem to be more conservative. And I think that the conservative movement should do well accepting more immigrants and just ha change, having a different discourse, some of the politicians. Because at the end, many people end up voting for the Democrats despite their ideology because they want security for their family members, because you know they don't have a TV host demonizing immigrants saying that they're gonna take away their jobs when it's a, an economic lie, right? So I totally understand that. Um, but you know, American citizens don't have the right to meet with a genocidal dictator in a foreign country. That's that's not a right. That's not in the U.S. Constitution, you know. Yeah, you suggested legal action against the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, for meeting with Maduro. Look, there are laws on the books in this country passed through the Verdad Act, which happened uh, in 2019, uh, part of Trump's sanctions that were codified into law that prohibit any American person or person subject to American jurisdiction in this country from doing any kind of financial deals or receiving any gift from the Maduro regime. So if the Democratic Socialists of America had their trip financed, received gifts from Maduro there, uh, have any kind of deal with this regime, that's illegal under U.S. law. And I think they should be prosecuted to the fullest extent. Interesting. How would you actually find out about set gifts or flights, like investigation? How does that work? I mean, that's what we have the, the, the FBI for, right? Um, you know, their bank accounts. Um. I can't decide if that is a good law or not. Yeah. Like, there's just something about that that is tinged with illiberalism to me. I, I understand that it could be concern, but you have to understand that the Maduro regime kills tens of thousands of people every year. We're talking about, imagine if you were to receive money from a murderer, a homicidal who was convicted, and you were collaborating and supporting that, that criminal. That would be illegal under U.S. law as a crime, right? You would be partners in the crime if you're benefiting from, from those you know, illegal activities. That's the same. It's just in a foreign country. Yeah, I mean, I guess what, so the, the difference is you don't take anything, right? Because, I mean, even Representative Tulsi Gabbard, like when abroad, met with Assad. Right. I don't personally have a problem with that. Um, foreign representatives, like people do that all the time. U.S. representatives travel. Um, but I don't know. That, yeah. that just seems like a bridge too far. I mean, the, the DSA activists and even like their, their leaders around the country, I don't know. They're just regular Joes. Like, what, if they get a watch from Maduro, you could you send them to prison? Yeah, I, I don't think they're regular Joes. I think that they want to turn this country into Venezuela. That's their, well, I don't think that. They, yeah, they tell you that. Th they're still average people. They're average people. DSA community leaders are, are your neighbors, whether you like them or not. I mean, criminals are our neighbors too. <laughs> uh, I think that if they violated the law and they're collaborating with a group of people that uh -huh. are killing people I know, that are starving a whole country, I mean, if this was Nazi Germany, if this was some other case, if this was communist China, people would not be saying what, yeah. what, you're, what you're telling me, right? And I view the Maduro regime just like that, because it affected me personally, because it affected people I know, because five million people like myself had to flee our country because of these people. And then these folks think they can travel to Venezuela and get money off it and, and take some pictures and violate U.S. law. I don't think that's correct. So why the double standard with Venezuela? Uh, in terms of American politics, because the, the rules are always changing based on who's in power, between how we relate to Venezuela. Um, what kind of actions did the Trump administration kind of change policy when it, when it regards Maduro's regime versus what Biden has done? 
Well, the first thing that Trump did, it was actually one of his first days in office, was to um, increase sanctions drastically on Venezuela. So the list of people in the Maduro regime who kind of have bank accounts, who their properties were confiscated, whole buildings in the city of Miami were owned by Venezuelan regime crooks, and they were confiscated by U.S. authorities, of course. Um, why? Because these are people who violate human rights. Most of them are drug dealers as well, um, part of the cartel of the sons, which is Department of Justice um, subject of investigations. And, you know, that's, that was the first step. They banned importing oil from the Venezuelan state oil company. They banned, Amer they banned Americans from lending money or, or any American financial institution from lending money to the Maduro regime. Um, and, and, and then this, what is called the secondary sanctions so that Americans cannot have financial deals with members of the regime. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that Americans can't send food to Venezuela or Venezuelans can't send remittances. They're totally free. We're totally free. And in fact, there are American companies in Miami who take food from Miami and then they take it door to door in Venezuela. Uh, but if you're going to collaborate with Maduro, that's illegal. Because that's the trick, right? Keeping the funds, the food, the resources that you're sending out of the hands of government intermediaries. Exactly. Because these regimes are propped up by foreign money, by people investing in those countries at the expense of the people. Right. Yeah. Um, in fact, every time the regime gets food, they use it as a political tool for control, right? And they give it to their friends, or you have to do this for me if you want your ration, and that's, we shouldn't allow that. I mean, is that how, so I think this is probably a good time to talk about what's going on in Cuba because some of the video footage that has come out in Cuba has shown people looting, like government-owned stores. The New York Times were reporting on that where um, you have government-owned stores in Cuba where prices are ratcheted up and they often are dealing in currencies that the Cuban people either don't even have or they cannot afford. Um, that's the kind of racket that keeps these regimes in power I think just people continuing to do business with those countries. Yeah. Uh, well, the Cuban regime is also propped up um, by the European Union, especially. Uh, you know, Cuba has had a U.S. embargo for many years, and the embargo does not forbid, you know, as, as I'm telling you, uh, sending food to your family members or medicines or anything like that. And in fact, people in Miami do that, and that's why the Cuban people still have some things to eat because of remittances. But the European companies have so many hotels, especially Spanish hotels in Cuba. Um, it's, it's incredible. And how this financial system works is that you as a tourist stay in the Spanish hotel in, in a very beautiful Cuban beach. Yeah. All the money that is just like a U.S. hotel, hundreds of dollars per night, goes to the Cuban regime. And then they pay a couple dollars a day to the workers. And they keep all the rest and pocket it to themselves. And the workers have no other option. Is that or, or starve? Well, people are mad. I think it is, it's always been there. We've got some video footage that I think we're going to throw up here real quick. Just of what's going on in Cuba, because this is one of the first big outbreaks uh, that we have seen of public anger in the streets of Cuba in, what, 20 years? Yeah. 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 You know, the, the thing that I think about engaging with this here in the United States is uh, the New York Times coverage makes it really hard to talk about what is happening. So their lead the other day, Cubans denounce misery and biggest protests in decades. This is true. Their lead is shouting freedom and other anti-government slogans. Thousands of Cubans took to the streets and cities around the country on Sunday to protest food and medicine shortages in a remarkable eruption discontent not seen in nearly 30 years. The framing of that is always like, well, where did this come from? Why are they suddenly discontent? Because I think Americans really do believe that Cuba is an island paradise. 
I mean, I remember when Michael Moore, <laughs> Michael Moore's documentary came out on the Cuban healthcare system. I don't know. It must have been like 15, 20 years ago at this point. Mm-hmm. It completely has warped the way that Americans think of that country. Yeah. I, I was lucky enough when I was in high school, I had a Cuban professor in Venezuela. Uh, who was not actually brought by the regime or anything, but he had fled Cuba in the 70s to Venezuela when he was still a free country. And I learned a lot from him. He told me how when he left Cuba, he obtained a special visa with a contract he had at the Venezuelan embassy, and he needed an exit visa from the Cuban regime. And when they interviewed him, the first thing they told you, oh, so you are a traitor to the motherland because you want to leave the country. And he just had to stay quiet and, you know, push through. Uh, but but they were teasing him so that he could say anything against the government so mm-hmm. they could deny him the exit. Uh, and so they, they entrap you by explaining why it is you're leaving, and if you actually say it's because I don't like it yeah. here, that's a, that's they'll a crime. Keep, yes, and they'll take everything you, or, or all your belongings because your house is not owned by you. So how, how would anybody want to live in a country that's where you don't own your home, where you can't start a business, where you don't know what you're going to eat next day? Of course people are protesting. Do you think it's the duty of the American media to frame kind of every bit of coverage about Cuba as like the communist regime and making sure that the news coverage reflects angst about the regime um, and because of what it actually purports to believe? Because like I think the, the conservative criticism, which is is fair, is that people are protesting food shortages, access to vaccines, and general bad conditions. Yeah. Um, and I think conservatives then look at that and they're like, well, they're downplaying the fact that it's a communist regime. But the other thing is still true. People are protesting because things have never been worse for Cuba. This has been a really bad time during the pandemic. So I, I think that the duty of the media is to tell the truth. And the truth is that Cuba has been for 62 years under a socialist regime. And the reason there are shortages is because of the socialist policies. You do not have to be an economist to know this. Uh, you know, people on the left and on the right agree that price controls lead to the shortages in Cuba, that the full nationalization of the economy has led to this disaster. It is only the very far left communists like AOC, like Bernie Sanders, who justify this based on U.S. sanctions, which is a lie. So I think that if the media wants to tell the truth, they should say that Cubans are protesting the socialist regime, their oppression, their lack of democratic rights, and also the food shortages and all the lack of medicine, which is a consequence of the policies of that regime. We'll hit pause here real quick. And just for everybody watching, if you're new to this show right now, uh, we would love if you would subscribe. We have a new program up every Thursday and videos throughout the week. You can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook at Rightly AJ. So like the video, subscribe, leave a comment. We will answer. Daniel will hop in the comments, right? And talk to people whether you like it or not. Uh, and I will too. So thanks for watching. And Daniel, so the the nationalization question. I mean, the whole reason there are shortages is it because that nothing is created within the walls of the country, like within the actual boundaries of the country. Everything is imports or nothing. Uh, most is imports. Um, so how it works is that, you know, it's not that Cuba doesn't produce anything. Of course, Cuba does produce some agricultural things, sugarcane, pork. Uh, it's just very little. Why? Because when the government nationalized all the things in the 1960s under Castro, which was very, very fast, actually, after he took power, um, there's no incentive for profit. Uh, Agriculture was collectivized. And if you produce something as a farmer, you wouldn't get to keep it. So the farmers made the minimal effort only not to get killed by the regime. And as a result, there's very little food. Um, the story that I have from some Cuban friends, they had to hide 
pigs inside their homes, in their backyards, and shut their mouths, because if their neighbors heard that they had a pig, it would be taken over by the government. It's illegal to own a pig. And they would do it so that they could feed themselves. It's illegal to own a pig? It's illegal to own things in general. Uh, it's been liberalized a little bit recently, and now people can open some small stores, uh, but that's it. And this is... This is the whole root cause of the decline of these countries, and I think what is just rotting the core of our own discourse and our young people today is envy. Like, just the uh, socialism and communism persist, and it will always persist, because envy is just one of the most natural um, human tendencies to want what your neighbor has. And when you don't have anybody telling you that it is wrong to, in fact, want what belongs to other people uh, and to, to, to downplay the idea that property should even exist, you will always get this kind of suffering. Um, I hope you write a book on that one day. <laughs> yeah, me too. Look, uh, think about that policy of being illegal to own a pig. That policy can only be enforced because there's a neighbor that rats you. Yeah. So if there wasn't that bad person looking up for what others have, how would the communist regime enforce their policies? It would be much harder, right? Uh, in Venezuela, it's much harder because they haven't been able to indoctrinate the population for as, as long as the Cubans, right? So it's much harder for the regime to, to find people or to find others who, who uh, you know, tell things about you. But, but we're going that way. And they can put out any narrative that they want in regards to protests and public discontent. They... Not amusing necessarily because it's kind of dark and shows the kind of power the regime has. But uh, President um, Diaz, well, how do you pronounce his last name? Diaz Canel. Diaz Canel. He took to TV the other day to blame the discontent in the streets on the CIA, American YouTubers, and none other than Mia Khalifa. <laughs> Mia Khalifa is uh, the leader of the Second Revolution of Cuba. This is the timeline we're living in. Hey, you know, props on her for supporting the Cuban, you know, people. I think that everybody should, no matter who they are. Uh, Pitbull did, and I really liked it. He had a really strong statement uh, on his social media. And I think more artists, we need more artists doing that because Hollywood has historically supported the Cuban regime and condemned the U.S. embargo. While if you ask Cubans... The Cuban embargo is a good thing because it takes money away from the Cuban regime. And what do they use the money for? To finance their oppression abroad and inside the country, buy weapons, to finance their, their spy operations in Venezuela, in Nicaragua, to finance war in the, war in the past in Angola. The, the Angolan war was basically won by, by the Cubans sending their advisors and, and sending troops to Angola. And, and they solidified a communist regime in a foreign country. I might be blurring the lines here between the embargo politics and the politics of sanctions. But I've always understood there to be, I think, a debate between conservative and libertarian wings of the Republican Party about the ideological merit of doing stuff like that and restricting free, free trade of goods because it is a question of who is getting hurt um, the most. And I, I think there is a, a case to be made and a, certainly a propaganda point to be made by the, the government in Cuba that the embargo by the United States hurts the Cubans, therefore you should be mad at the United States. It is one of the most reliable tools for despots around the world to blame other countries. Idi Amin used Britain as his foil for the longest time to consolidate power in his country, and you just see it play out over and over again. So like, I always want to see a politics where the United States is not giving the despots the demon and boogeyman that they need 
to remain in but, power. But you have to, to, to know this, Stephen. They're always going to blame the United States whether there's an embargo or not. Yeah. And the people don't believe it. What does it mean for a regime to use this argument? What are they gaining? They're not gaining the support of the Cuban people. They don't need the support of the Cuban people. They have the guns. The Cuban people don't. Uh, whether they use the Cuban embargo as an argument or not doesn't matter. Venezuela, Chavez, has used the argument of American sanctions before there were even American sanctions. They would just make them up. It's, they can say whatever they want. I don't think that what the debate over the Cuban embargo is a valid debate over whether it hurts the Cuban people or not. And we can mm -hmm. talk about whether sanctions even work in the first place or not, because there's some economic literature that shows that at the end, the goods just flow to another country and then they come back. Maybe that's the case. And maybe we just need stronger sanctions in, in any case. It was hard to travel there before Obama, right? Uh, yes, but Americans, I think, can travel just to a third country. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and people do. And I don't think they should because at the end, as I was telling you with the hotel example, you yep. pay the hotel and the regime gets 90% of the, of the profit. Yeah. Traveling to Cuba is helping to prop up that regime. Yes. Uh, I actually do look down upon uh, people who do it recreationally, different than if you're doing for journalism. I, I don't think people should travel recreationally to, to Cuba. You were tweeting this morning, I think on your way in, that... Cuba exports socialism worldwide and regime change is a solution to that. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Uh, well, Cuba uh, has historically supported communist governments abroad and financed them. Uh, Chavez uh, was trained uh, by the Cubans. Um, so were the other members of his regime. Maduro, as a teenager, traveled to Cuba and was in intense communist training there. And now he's the dictator of Venezuela. Uh, why? Because the Cuban regime needs... Uh, basically colonies to obtain money. Uh, they receive mo uh, the oil from Venezuela, and that's how they have also financed their operations. Um, they tried to invade Venezuela in the 1960s, actually. There was a, a, a landing uh, or marine invasion, mm -hmm. and the Venezuelans actually expelled them. They weren't able to win. And th that's actually the original reason they were expelled from the Organization of American States. It was because Venezuela requested their expulsion because they invaded them. Um, the Nicaraguan government, Angola, in Spain, you know, the, the, the Podemos party who is in power in Spain right now is financed or received financed by the Cuban regime. These people export their disaster and they want to export it to the United States, make no mistake. And yes, of course, if the Cuban, if the Cuban people were living in freedom, we wouldn't have this problem. They are succeeding in exporting it to the United States. It's already here. It's in the halls of Congress. I think we were talking uh, in the green room before coming out here. The DSA now has actual members uh, of their organization, the Democratic Socialist America, have Democratic representatives in Congress. They have not said a word about what's going on in the streets of Cuba. And I, had to, I just had to double check that before even coming in today on the train because I figured at least by now they would have said something. They haven't. The only thing that I have seen from any members of the squad who are part of the Progressive Caucus, so this is like Ilan Omar, Ayanna Presley, AOC, and then Bernie Sanders, of course, in the Senate is, you know, kind of like the, the patriarch of the family. Nothing. They're all still complaining about the CEO of Virgin Galactic going to space. Uh, that is the only thing that is on their minds. What they did say was a retweet by his name is Chewy Garcia, Representative Chewy Garcia of Illinois. He said, I stand with the Cuban people and call on their government to respect the right to peaceful protest. And that's where solidarity ends, that they should protest peacefully. Trump-era sanctions on top of our decades-long embargo have sown desperation instead of democracy. 
the United States must end the blockade. So the Progressive Caucus, that's all they have to say is that we caused this problem. Well, I think there's so much to unpack there. Um, on the first place, the American people did not obtain freedom from England through peaceful sit-ins and signing letters to King George asking, uh, yes, please give us independence. And if you don't, we'll just keep sitting down and, and waiting for the British army to murder everybody. That's not what happened. There was the American Revolution, right? So I, I go further. I know that might not be popular with everybody. I think the Cuban people have the right to overthrow their government by any means. Um, and so does any people living under oppression, Venezuela, Nicaragua, you know, any other country. Um, now, the, the other thing is that they're saying that this is caused by the desperation of the Cuban, of the embargo by the United States, the blockade. But if socialism works so well in Cuba and the system is so well, why do they have to trade with the United States? You know? Why do they need the imperialist goods trading with, with the Cuban socialist pure economy? Why do they even need to trade with other countries? They should be able to provide everything for themselves, right? Um, you know, that, that's just my, my rhetorical argument. Well, that is kind of the, the socialist, like the, the tinge of the argument, both on the socialist right, and we, we kind of call that now, right? So like the populist right, the socialist right, and the like socialist it. left. Yeah, I mean, like they, they want less trade. They want less internationalism. They want everything to be nationalized, made at home for Americans, by Americans. And, you know, you don't do any, any business with the rest of the world. Uh, and the, the claim there is that we can do everything ourselves. The countries who do it, they're falling apart. They need, they need contact with the rest of the world. They need trade. They need access. No, I mean, this is the thing. My only skepticism of the Cuban embargo is that it's not strong enough. Uh, it's that Cuba still trades with the rest of the world, just not with the United States. And it's the Cuban regime that profits from it. Uh, you know, as a percent of GDP, Cuba's uh, trade is the same as Brazil. Uh, it's about 30% of GDP. And they just trade with the European Union. They trade with, with uh, in America, with Africa. They receive free oil from Venezuela. So, so they have no shortage of international trade. Uh, the problem is that they're a socialist country, right? There's no private property. Therefore, they can't produce and they're poor. Um, and, and to blame the U.S. embargo, which only takes away money from the regime that oppresses the people, it's just ignorant of what Cubans think and ignorant of the actual effects of, of an embargo that is really not that effective. Are you hopeful or cynical about the growing popularity of socialism in the United States? We just talked about the Democratic Socialists of America. Love them or hate them, they're on the march. They're growing. Um, I just walked down my downtown yesterday, pamphlets of theirs on the street, several different townhomes with mailers from them in their mailboxes. We have a had, we actually just lost re-election, uh, a Democratic Socialist representing my district in the State House of Virginia. Um, they are growing, and I don't think that they're going to be turned back personally. Um, and I hate that for you more than anybody uh, because I have become so cynical about the ability to actually turn back socialism. I feel like people only get turned off to it once they've experienced it. Yeah. And I feel like America has not had their full run in with socialism yet, and I'm afraid for when we do. Look, I'm, I'm afraid too. But um, I, I think that we need uh, uh, to change the, the, the discourse in this country, and we do it through the education and, and the family. Um, parents have, for a very long time, left, I think, most of the value education to schools, and that's been a problem, and that's why they, they, you know, the children of conservative families are not conservative. And if that was not the case, then this would be a very different country, right? 
Um, so I think that that's where the problem can be fixed. And it's a difficult solution, right? Because there's no um, top-down solution to it. There's no government that's going to change it. It's going to be individual action and hard to coordinate. But it starts individually in the family, teaching children about freedom and to despise uh, capital, to despise uh, socialism, right? Um, but the other solution is that we really need to educate children in this country about the evils of socialism and about what DSA stands for. I don't think that that's politicizing education. I think Florida just actually passed a yeah. really good bill. DeSantis, right? So yes. isn't isn't the, the tinge of that bill that you actually have to, in history, civics classes, bring yes. in somebody who's fled uh, communist regimes to yes. hear from their I volunteer. <laughs> I'll say that I, I volunteer. You know, you can bring me anywhere uh, if you're watching. Uh, but there's there's no shortage of people in Florida or in the rest of the United States who fled socialist countries. And yes, they have to teach the evils of those socialist regimes in school. And I think we need to do much more of that because people have to understand that America was not founded on socialism. It is not an objectively good ideology. And, you know, of course, people can believe whatever they want. There's freedom of, of speech. There's, there's freedom of conscience in this country. But if you are going to go to, to a school, you should learn about historical facts. And there's a historical fact that people starve in socialist regimes. That's it. Yeah, and it's just perspective, just rounding out your understanding of tyranny. I, we have a, a laser focus in American pop culture and history classes on fascism. And that's great. Fascism sucks. Uh, but the people who primarily and singularly focus on fascism as the be-all, end-all of tyranny are the people who are going to be throwing you in gulags tomorrow because they do not have a fully rounded view of all the different ways you can end up with a tyrannical government. And I, I mean, this is the, the biggest problem that we have today, uh, is I think people who are drifting towards authoritarianism and thinking they are doing it because they are good people. Yeah, I'm actually also concerned just about, just as much as I'm concerned about socialism and, and democratic socialists of America, I'm also concerned about the um, socialist turn of the right, right? Of people not believing in free trade, of people not believing in free markets in general and believing that the government is there, is going to just come and break up the companies I dislike because I dislike them. You know, what, what, what kind of uh, authority do you have to do that, right? I'm not saying that the government doesn't have a role in the economy. It has a huge role. You know, protecting private property is a very hard job. Uh, intellectual property, you know, cracking down on, on China is they still own intellectual property. That's illegal. That's not okay. But there is an ocean of distance between that and between saying the United States shouldn't be trading with the world because that destroys our economy and our jobs. That's a lie. That's just been proven false. Do you want autarky? No trade at all? That's what Spain did during the Franco regime in the 1950s and 1960s. And that's actually what made my grandparents flee Spain in the 1950s to Venezuela. There was no international trade. Spanish people were given rationing cards for food because they couldn't import food from other countries. And guess what? We cannot grow bananas in the United States. We have to import them. That's how it works. You know, you're not going to change geography. There's something called comparative advantage. Economics 101. You cannot make everything. We don't, we're not subsistence farmers anymore. And if you wanted to change us and put us in that lifestyle, well, then that's going to be the consequence. We're going to be poor. I think we kind of started talking a little bit about Reaganism. I remember you wrote a piece in the Daily Wire about returning to it and, and using it as our, our beacon for the future. And I think what we've talked about here and sort of laid out is the guy having his big moment in the sun right now is Teddy Roosevelt. Do you have strong opinions about that sort of uh, changing, changing face of the Republican Party? 
well, I mean, I don't. I think Terry Russell was a, 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 a regular <laughs> president. Yeah, I mean, I don't have. I'm, I'm not strongly opposed to Terry Roosevelt. I think he did many good things. Yeah. It's funny to me though that the people who are against foreign intervention uh, want to put Terry Roosevelt on the top of their heads, given that he was a big interventionist. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I think that 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 my problem is with the policies. My problem is the people want to implement policies of the past. And then it's just ironic that the people who say that it's not the 1980s anymore think this is in the 1920s or the 1910s or the 1890s, right? Um, it's not. It's all about. It's not about the time or the policies. It's all about whether they work or not. And free trade works, and uh, small government works, and that's what we need to do. That's what the conservative mo- movement should stand for. Well, I believe you are going to turn the tide, Daniel D. Martino. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, dear. All right, well, we try never to end every show on doom and gloom, but actually share something that we are excited about because the world, there's always something good going on. So, Daniel, what's got what's on your mind for good news? So, I know we've heard a lot of bad things about inflation and many things about the jobs reports, but I think that the highlight of the good news... That- Wait, our, our salaries are going to go up, according to CNBC. Well, yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> my, my good news is about jobs. Uh, the United States right now has the highest number of job openings in history. Uh-huh. 9.2 million jobs are open. So the country is open. People can get a job. They just need to go and find it. Teens right now have the highest employment rate uh, since before the Great Recession, since over 10 years ago. And, and I think that it's a good time to look for a job. Land of opportunity, right? There you go. So I think two things for me. The first is on my scooter ride into the studio today, the fences are down around the White House and Congress. Finally, you can finally now take your cringy selfie in front of the White House. Once again, it has felt like we are living in a police state here in Washington for the past six months. And it is just, it's hard to explain why it is such a relief to see it all come down. Yeah. Um, I thought Biden would have done it a lot sooner. I'm, I'm still a little bit mad it took this long. Um, the second thing mm-hmm. is I have been waiting anxiously for my favorite musician's next album to come out. It did come out like last month. It's called Big Colors by Ryan Adams. And it's great. It's the uh, the songs of my summer. And I am just rooting for this guy because he's been struggling for a couple of years. He got canceled. Um, uh, <laughs> he got very canceled. Uh, he was Me Too'd. Um, and it's, uh, it's something where he deserved it. And there has to be a road to having a life again, you know. Uh, he went into hiding basically for two years and kind of reemerged with a new album. It's awesome. It's a, a great set of songs. But he's being completely blacklisted from Record Store Day, from playing in venues again, and from actually getting back out there and traveling the road to redemption. And you can't travel the road to redemption if you're locked in your house. And that's the part that's been frustrating me. But I'm excited about the album, and it has made my my summer great. So good. Yeah. All good things. Daniel, thanks for coming on right now. We'll be back next week with more. Join us every Thursday for a new episode and then videos throughout the week. And you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook by at RightlyAJ. Like and subscribe this video. I'm Stephen Kent. We'll see you next time.